Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, it is my pleasure to welcome my good friend Ben Nickel to the DLC Drop Podcast. Ben is known as a former player, the self-proclaimed Pope of Esports. We're going to get into that a little bit. He's now a senior account executive at the Esports Engine, and he is just someone you got to know in the gaming space, in the esports space. Welcome. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. I was I was touched when you called me like, hey, man, you want to come talk on my podcast? I was like, yeah, yes, I do. <laughs> Tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> I felt like you were somebody who I wanted to like build up to, you know, even though we have a personal friendship, you know, you I wanted to, to build the credibility just to make sure that when I put the ask out there, you were like, Yes, I. You are worthy of of my. I will always accept the opportunity to talk esports with John Davidson. Well, I appreciate that. Well, a little bit about us, just our friendship, so that people know. We kind of we got connected during my GameStop days. You are you were with NYXL. We did some pretty cool. I think we first talked while I was at Red Bull, bro, and we were talking about Red Bull Nightlines. Do you remember that activation, which I thought was one of the coolest ideas of all time? Yes. Uh, dreamt up by a guy named Jason Hines, who you probably... Dude, I got a call with Jason later today. We are yeah. we recently reconnected post-COVID. Well, it's not post-COVID, but post-apocalypse. There you go. And no, Jason's the man. He's a good friend of mine. And yeah, I forgot that you had moved to NYXL, but I met you before that. So thank you for the, the yeah. memory jog. Yeah, Red Bull Nightlines, just for the folks that are paying attention, I was a pretty i don't know if we ever actually pulled it off we did not uh, we got super close it was a great idea we're going to share it here just in case any other retailers decide they want to borrow from it but you know red bull is always about doing cool activations that felt authentic to whatever space they're playing in whether it's skate or gaming or f1 yeah Uh, and you know we were always asking ourselves like when is the most appropriate time for somebody in this sport to have a red bull and Nightlines was this idea of during midnight releases of games at GameStops around the country, you show up at the line where people line up with like yep. a cart, a gaming cart, and you start at the back of the line and the person at the back plays against the person that's next in line. And if they win, they move up in the line. Yeah. Uh, so you could actually skip all the way to the front of the line by just being a swaggy gamer. And of course, everyone gets a can of Red Bull to keep them awake while they're waiting. And I always really loved that activation and that concept. So Yeah, was, we actually, uh, we, we tested it once around FIFA. So it was a store in Dallas and it was a very successful single activation, but it was just, you know, you got a a lot of things moving. It's, it's tough to work in a, a big corporation. That's something that we can talk about too. Sure. But it was cool because it, in, we, we, we looked at, okay, from a GameStop standpoint, how do we want to incentivize the customer, right? We want people to show up early. We want them to stay in line. And we want to kind of eventize that experience of standing in a line because a lot of times you're just like, man, this sucks. And, you know, usually you you can't enable people to play the game until it comes out. Yep. And so for some consumer behavior with gamers, a big incentive is can you play the game first, right? You're the first one to be like, I played it, it's awesome, or it sucks, <laughs> depending yeah. on the game. And so to give people that opportunity you're generating positive sentiment around tweets, Instagram posts, if I'm playing it now. And then just, it's, it's super cool. We, I think we gave somebody a year's supply of Red Bull 
Oh my God. Which <laughs> please don't drink that much Red Bull in a sitting. I think, I think um, it was monthly shipments, but it was the funniest thing because yes. it was some kid who was old enough to receive uh, <laughs> monthly a year's, shipments of Red Bull. <laughs> his mom's like, so bummed. please stop sending these cans. Yeah. No. Yeah, man. I think the other really fun thing to say about, you know, cool activations like that is just like, how do you take something that's completely mundane and turn it into a memorable experience that you want to come back to? Right. Mm. That's, that's what it was for us. How do we really gamify something and make it really cool and memorable and something that like, oh man, I was at the GameStop to pick up my copy of my new copy of FIFA and this happened. And I'm, wow, it was so sick. I hope I can do it again someday. Yeah. Yeah. Another activation that's similar to that, that I did with Buffalo Wild Wings, that was another test that didn't <clears throat> end up getting off the ground completely due to a number of things. But it turns out there's like 1,200 Buffalo Wild Wings in the same parking lot as a GameStop. And so wow. we, what we did, 17 different locations, which are all NFL cities, around the release of uh, Madden, we brought consoles. Xbox was the console partner to Madden. So we brought Xboxes over to Buffalo Wild Wings. And if you... The, here's the thing at GameStop. They want you to pre-ring, which which gets the, the line to go faster. So you go and you pay for it. You get your receipt. It's like, well, what am I going to do for two hours, right? I'm going to go to B-dubs. Well, we're hosting a tournament with Madden that hasn't even yeah. released yet. And the winner, I was able to get NFL tickets for the winners of those. So I was like, can I enter this competition? We could probably just spend this whole time talking about cool marketing activations. Because that <laughs> makes me want to talk about uh, a B-dubs activation that we worked on and never followed through on. Not, You know what the truth is? B-dubs is that one kind of like corporate company that flirts with everybody but never does anything that's the reality mm. i'm calling you out b-dubs hey um, I, I'll, i'd like to give a shout out to michael tubman who was there during my time he was a tremendous asset so i i'll say it happened because of mike and it didn't move forward because of other reasons so shout, sure. shout out michael but our, but our b-dubs story is it was a fifa activation how can we really do something memorable and surprising during Champion League, Champions League soccer games. So the, the, the prank was, we're going to set up FIFA to be up on all the screens. It's going to be the same teams playing that you're expecting, but it's going to be a couple of FIFA pros behind the, behind the bar you know, that are playing <laughs> yeah. the game. And we're going to see how long until consumers realize it's a video game and not the actual match. That's cool. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, that, that, that's a little bit of early marketing event, experiential fun stuff. Well, here's the off. thing. I feel like what makes a great marketer a lot of times is understanding the activity very deeply, right? Like I talk with brands and agencies all the time about, hey, this is how you can effectively engage the esports audience. Mm -hmm. And it's all about enhancing experiences, but you have to know what the community wants, what's cool, what sucks, right? What's missing that should be there. And I feel like you're one of the people who knows this most deeply because you've had experience from being a pro player, being well, a, let's not get that far. We had a player that went to tournaments and performed poorly. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't know. So in skateboarding, pro is a very specific definition. So a lot yeah. of people say, John, you're a pro skateboarder because I got paid to skateboard for certain times in my life. But in skateboarding, you're only actually pro if you have your name on a board, which I did not. And that's a lot right. to explain every time somebody says, introduce you on a, a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we could get one. Go Maybe we could share one. It could be like Mr. Bitter DLC. Pro at last. <laughs> Pro at last. That's what we'll call it. So, okay, I don't want to give you a, a title you, you maybe aren't comfortable wearing. So, Gamer 
in tournaments that performed poorly is the op- official. Well, it's like a competitive player. Like I, was, and it was like I was on a team in StarCraft, but I didn't get paid anything. Like, okay. They put me in a hotel room. I would go to tournaments, and then you know I'd make it to maybe like the round of 128. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And that was like, and that was maybe my best run ever because you know, I've had plenty where I didn't get past the round of whatever the first round was. So, but yeah, I played a lot of StarCraft, and then you know I, just. To take to run with it after it, what really happened is I became a commentator, right? Um, because I was like close to it and I was creating tons of content, and um, just maybe by accident, right place, right time, I, I got a chance to go move to Germany and work with ESL as as their talent. Right. Starcraft was first kind of popping off, and that was really a special experience. It was like 2011, 2010, I think, is when Carmack called me late in the year to say, "Hey, you want to move to Germany and be a caster?" And I was like, "Oh shit." And so, you know, I made some phone calls and asked some people and ultimately I called my mom and was like, Hey mom, I'm thinking about, you know, stopping doing like normal adult things and moving to Germany to be a StarCraft commentator. And I was just really afraid of what she was going to say. And she's like, you have to do it. And so Incredible. I did it. Where, and, uh, where did you grow up? Where were you living at the time before you moved, made that move to Germany? I was in Atlanta, Georgia. I was, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a two-time college dropout because of this decision, right? Oh, I, went wow. to school. I only dropped out one time. <laughs> I went to college right out of high school and I was just totally unprepared for it. And so I made it like a semester and then like left and did a bunch of like jobs that young guys do, worked construction. Yeah. I, I dug up dinosaurs for a guy one summer in South Dakota. Which what kind really of dinosaur cool. was this? This is what we need. Well, it was mostly fish, but we also okay. found like a triceratops tail. It wasn't a triceratops. It was like the big armored guy. It looked like an armadillo. Uh, I'll never. Yeah. Oh, that's an ankylosaurus, according to my five-year-old son. Ankylosaurus. That's I think pretty so. Good. Or a stegosaurus. We found, one of, the, we found one of the tails. An ankylosaurus has the ball in the tail. The stegosaurus has the spikes. That was him. The ball. The ball in the tail. Yeah. Okay. Um, you'd be really surprised. Like, like freelancer archaeology is like a real thing. These people go out to South Dakota and they find artifacts and they sell them on like auction websites. Huh. Um, while I was out there, somebody in our group found a Tyrannosaurus tooth, which they sold for like $25,000. And that's like, that's if a you, whole industry. If you were to break that down to an hourly rate, what do you think these guys are? I mean, is, is this retired guys, rich guys doing this? Or are these people actually making a living going and digging up some dinosaur bones? I'd, I'd, I'd compare it to like, you know, the gold rush dudes that go out there and they're like panning for gold. It's a really yeah. similar kind of a thing. And you get all walks of life. I was out there working that's for cool. a college professor who did it during his summers. And then he would teach during the school years. His name was Steve Nicholas, really cool guy. And, uh, you know, there was the guy that found the Tyrannosaurus tooth was just like a, he was like in his early twenties and he's just like, he went to college to study it and he learned a lot about it. And he was out there like taking it super seriously. And, you know, if you're good and you know what you're doing and these, you know, he found that T-Rex tooth one day, it's 25 K. And like, that wasn't the only thing he found that summer. So, Dang. you know, it's a good sure summer you know, real money. But anyway, that's one of the things I did as a college dropout. And then eventually I kind of found my way back to school. Uh, and I was in my senior year when Carmack called me. I was, I was about to graduate with my English major. And I was like, ah, to hell with it. Let's drop You're out like, again. I can't do anything with this degree. I might as well drop <laughs> out again. <laughs> I actually think the English that I studied has been so instrumental in like shaping my ability to communicate and to write and to speak. Cool. Um, I think uh, I think it was a very very useful major. But well, I take know, that I back then. Excuse no, me. No, I just I'm just I probably wouldn't encourage anybody to spend two hundred thousand dollars on an English degree. That would be. I, agree I went with that. to Georgia State College, which is not a very expensive or good school. 
But it was a school, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> they had books and classes and professors. That's right. And I went there and... I got grades. And I dropped out. Uh, yes, a second time. So what was uh, life like going to Germany for the first... Had you been there before? Was this a, I'm buying a one-way ticket mm-hmm. and I'm going to go experience this new land? What was that like? Sort of. You know, when I was... My grandfather was an ex-Marine. And when I was like 15, he took me to Germany for like a week. You know, cool. and that's, that's I went to like Frankfurt and saw some factories, you know, and that was... And he drank beer and he, he had me drink some like hot cocoa with some liquor in it. And I cried because you're not supposed to drink alcohol. I was very... <laughs> A straight edge young kid. Never had a drop since. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. Maybe that's what started the spiral into being a two-time college dropout. You never but, know. But um, anyway, I mean, for the most part, it's the first time I'd ever been there. Certainly the first time I'd ever lived abroad and really special experience. Flew over, landed in Dusseldorf, met my now longtime friend and for many years colleague, Rotterdam, Kevin Vanderkoy, who's a, just the greatest StarCraft commentator ever. And yeah. One of the greatest esports professionals that will ever be, and a just legend, and I love him. And he was such a true like partner to me in my career. Cool. Would not have achieved anything that I've achieved were it not for his friendship. Worked at ESL for a little bit over a year, and then Kevin and I both moved back to California, where we worked for a company called NASL, yeah. doing a lot of the same stuff. But we were also kind of moving behind the camera a little bit, doing a lot of production, a lot of segment creation, a little bit of event management. We launched the World of Tanks League while we were there, of all things. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, then that took me to Red Bull. I was at Red Bull for five years. That's where I learned to be a real professional. Mm. And then I went to New York for two years, which was just another amazing experience that we can talk about. Yeah. Uh, that's where I proclaimed myself Pope of Esports. That's where the, the self-proclamation. Okay. Yeah. I, I was wondering when that, when yeah. that, uh, when you crammed yourself that. But. And then I came back to the West Coast because I fell in love with a girl and decided to follow her back West. And, you know, that's still going great. And Happens to the best of us. Thanks, thanks to Tom Garcia at NGE, now Esports Engine, for making a job for me when I decided to do something really stupid professionally, but really good personally. That's awesome. Um, and that brings me to here. And here we are today. So yeah. walk me through this to go back through your through your career here. So you're a struggling competitor, right? So you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I didn't t- frame it that way either, John. <laughs> a competitor. Did you know, I mean, I know what this is like. I remember when I skated my first competition against like real pros and stuff, all these guys in the magazine, I I was skating against Ryan Sheckler and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm not going to make it. Yeah. Um, Not on this, not on this. And so, yeah, well, that's a long story there too. But, you know, I was like, I'm not going to make it as a pro skater, but I, I kind of found my way. Did did you have an aha moment or did the, the casting and the, the content just emerge and you yeah. naturally moved into that? Sort of. Yeah, I can answer that question, I think. First, as a player, you know, I played a lot of StarCraft Brood War and StarCraft 2 came out and I'm like, I'm going to be competitive at this game. I played really hard and I practiced my butt off. And the thing that kind of got me started as a content creator is I wanted to get good fast. And so I started to get coaching lessons from In Control, rest in peace, Jeff Robinson, good friend. Mm and another person who really helped launch my career. And at the time, getting coaching in video games was like super taboo. It was like, who gets coaching for video games, you stupid nerd? Why would you do that? Yeah, now everybody's and like, was, go win the Fortnite World Cup. How can yeah, <laughs> yeah, dude. And it was also really early on in, this, in the streaming days. It was back when you were using like Adobe Flash Media Live Encoder or whatever to run your streams. And yeah, Twitch was just in TV, but first you streams to Ustream or Livestream. 
you uploaded your VODs to Blip, not to YouTube, because Blip monetized better. Yeah. And like, I thought that I could be a really good player for a hot minute, but my stream sort of took off and like I started focusing more on content creation. And so it, it became less for me about putting a target on Naniwa and Huck and Idra and more about putting a target on a guy like Day9. I was like, I'm as good a con- of a content creator as Day9. I can do this as well as Day9 can. Yeah. And I will never, ever forget sitting in a hotel room with Day9 at an MLG. I was hired to be talent and Day9 uh-huh. was there as talent. They put us in the same hotel room. And talking to him about StarCraft for the first time and just the way that he analyzed the game and zoomed in and zoomed mm. out and thought about everything. And I was just like, holy shit, I am not day nine. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there was this like incredible realization of just like, this guy is like savant brilliant. He just he yeah. thinks in a really special way and he articulates himself in a really special way. And he's incredibly funny. And like I'm incredibly proud of the talent work I did. And I think that you know Roddy and I were a really special kind of caster duo back yeah. in the day but nobody really stands as an equal to day nine that guy is incredible and i'll also never forget you know uh, maybe years later we were casting a dream hack together and sean and i day nine were called to do an autograph signing and i was i sat next <laughs> to sean while people lined up to sign autographs and there were two lines and my line was, <laughs> there wasn't a line and sean's line stretched across the entirety of the of the venue right like the, we yeah. didn't get through the line when when they called us away after two hours of signing autographs. Sean made an announcement. He's like, "Guys, I'm sorry, I got to go back and cast games. I'm going to run down the line and high five everybody." And so we ran down the line to high five everybody, and it was like thousands of people. Wow! You know, the guys' gravitas, especially then, was just unbelievable. And I will always say that no esport has ever had talent like StarCraft had in the beginning. Yeah. And I think without that, that maybe esports doesn't pop off the way that it did. StarCraft really brought it and made it happen. Yeah, I'm really proud to have been a part of that. Did it ever pop into your head during this autograph session that you think, if I could just do his signature... <laughs> his signature was really cool. We could, really cool we could signature. get this line going a lot faster. It's like, hey, if you want day nine signature, I can do it here too. So. I think really eventually I just sort of settled into the fact that like I got my own kind of thing and style and brand and like it was it was me and Kev it wasn't me yeah it was it was it was was us right and like day nine didn't have that day nine was day nine he stood alone and like he didn't have that and then there was like Nick and Dan out in Korea Tastosis and like they they were their thing so it was like those guys in Korea Sean in North America and then me and Kevin in Europe and that was like those, those were the people who were talking about Starcraft and of course it's changed so much since then and now it's, you know, it's still Roddy and it's still Nick and Dan and day nine still pops up and does stuff. Yeah. But a lot of the like current pros are also talent now, like the Muslim and Todd and yeah, this, the whole industry's changed a lot. Starcraft also is not the biggest esport anymore. It was for a long right. time, it was number one unquestionable. And, you know, now it's a different kind of a, kind of a story. Well, we have so many titles now and there's so much commercialization. Right. I think yeah. one something that's interesting, one reason I, I always love getting your opinion on stuff is most people who I talk to anyway in my world are like pro esports growth, pro commercialization. And you're somebody who I think you have just a more measured approach. I think, you know, you and I have talked and said, hey, you know, league isn't for people who don't understand it. It's for mm-hmm. the people who play the game and understand yeah. it. We, we don't necessarily need to, you know, dumb it down so that we can grow the audience bigger or things of this nature. I'd really, I'd like to get some of your thoughts on that because I think sure. it's so unique and your 
experience yeah. from the inside is really valuable. Yeah, I kind of hate the idea or the argument that we're going to grow the audience. I think that's stupid. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I get really frustrated by like folks who come into our industry. I'm, I'm going to do a little gatekeeping, right? Folks come into our industry Here and try go. to like say how it's going to be. I don't mean to be that guy. Yeah. But like esports is such a small microcosm of gaming, man. And so if you want to grow yeah. an esports audience, you need to stop asking yourself how I can improve the broadcast. And you need to start asking yourself, how can I make the game grow? Because if the game grows, your audience grows, right? Yeah. Sports is always going to be an analog of that. And for folks that come from traditional sports, I actually like to compare it to golf, uh, a game okay. I've been playing a lot lately. Yeah. But if you if you are not a golfer, I promise you, you're not tuning in to watch the Masters. You do not care and you can't care. It's, you're just incapable of True. making it fun for yourself. But if you are a golfer, you are really captivated by watching the Masters and seeing the incredible play and the great swings and the and funny situations, right? Like, yeah, it's really important to realize that your audience is an audience of players. Everybody's a player first. Mm. Um, there is not anybody watching esports that doesn't play games or doesn't play the game that they're watching. Or at least there isn't anybody watching who hasn't played, right? Like I might see a League of Legends broadcast, be like, oh, what is this? This is interesting. I'm going to check it out for a little bit. Oh, I'm going to go turn, try to, I'm going to try the game. Yeah. They're going to play the game a little bit so that they can develop an understanding. And then they're going to decide whether or not they're going to stick around. But you, there's nobody watching esports that doesn't play it at all. It's just, I, I'm right. sorry. Even even the billionaire try hedge fund aren't going to be there. Right. right. Even those guys that bought in, like they became players because they also bought a PlayStation or an Xbox or a gaming PC and they fired it up and they played a few times. They developed a little bit of an understanding for it just so that they could say, oh, I get it. And guess what? Now you're a player forever because you have right. initiated yourself. So, yeah, man, like, I don't I don't want to hear people talking to me about how do we grow the audience. I want to hear people talking about like, hey, this is what we're going to do to grow the community, the game, the the base. The, the top gets bigger when the bottom gets bigger. Um, trying to build from the top down is is silly. Yeah, I think the tough place we found ourselves is, and this is my answer for why esports has grown in the, especially in the U.S. over the last like four years, right, four or five years, is brands and agencies who represent them. They see that traditional sports viewership is declining. They see that television viewership is declining. They say, what what are all the young people doing? They're playing video games. Okay, well, it's super difficult to integrate organically into a video game other than the release event, right? Mm-hmm. I always use Red Dead as the example. Like, hey, if you're Doritos or you're Mountain Dew, like how are you integrating into, you know, maybe if you're, what is it, Ariat, the boot company or something? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know if there's some DLC in there that's going to work out, but they see esports and they see traditional sponsorable assets that are in traditional sports and they say, oh, yeah. I know this. Teams, leagues, jerseys, venues, content, etc. And then they say, okay, Pepsi, boom, I'm going to put my logo everywhere it is in the NFL. But kids reject that because Mm. just younger generations demand more from brands. And then the esports audience demands even more because it's like people like yourself. Hey, you know, when I was competing in or when I was casting in Germany, whatever, where were you? You know, I you know, you, you arrive once there's money to be made off my back. That's how this goes. And then, so now you've got all these teams and these leagues. Now the leagues are owned by the publishers, so they can be a loss leader from a marketing standpoint for the publisher, but the teams desperately need money and sponsorship revenue is the number one source of revenue, right? And so the, the media rights that we see in traditional sports haven't been figured out yet. And so the one differentiator between these teams is viewership. 
So they're saying, okay, the way I get more sponsors is based on numbers of viewers and data isn't quite where it needs to be to provide those, I think, deeper insights that, that, that illustrate the value of the audience as well. But I think everyone's just chasing dollars so they can stay alive until they find better monetization models or, or they can get to a place where they don't have to purely rely on sponsorship. And the only answer is, how do we get more eyeballs or more butts and seats outside of COVID season? Yeah. And the answer to that is by getting more people to play the game. You know what I mean? Right. Um, to come back to it, not to cut you off, I apologize. But but yeah, you're you're right. Teams do struggle with revenue. And I think the ones who have the most revenue are the ones that are more media company and less team because to your point, they're creating sponsorable assets. You know, yeah. we're, we're, I'm going to make this video series. I'm going to have these streamers. I'm going to, you know, FaZe Clan's done a great job of kind of transcending it a little bit and becoming a little bit more lifestyle. relevant. Yeah, yeah, lifestyle. But even that, dude, is not exactly, not, it's not like they're printing money. And I'm sure that their burn probably outweighs what, what they're bringing in. Yeah, every time I pull up Esports Observer and I'm seeing, okay, somebody else got another investor. Got a, yeah. My reaction is, you needed more money? Yeah. Like the last yeah. raise wasn't enough? Yeah. It, I actually think the leagues need to do a better job of supplementing team revenue right like like yeah you're probably not going to get a nfl caliber broadcast deal maybe they will and just I'll, I'll be proven wrong i would love for that to happen by the way of course but like the teams really are relying on this like profit sharing to to come around right right and like i, I again i would point away from the broadcast and back to the game and try and ask you know what can we do to better monetize the game and to pass some of that through to the teams whether it's you know league skins or you know right. what have you but that's that's still a fraction of what we all need to make it super super sustainable. Right. Well, I want to I want to I value your precious time, and I want to make sure we share two things with the audience that I think they'll really enjoy. I want to hear more about you getting into Red Bull, where you said you became a true professional. You got into this big marketing engine that also sells drinks. <laughs> And then also uh, the localization efforts at NYXL, because I, cool. I, I had the opportunity to see that firsthand. I was really impressed. So tell me about getting to Red Bull and what you learned there. Yeah. So I, I joined Red Bull maybe 2014, 20 something. I was there for just under five years and I went to New York in 2018. So maybe late 2013, early 2014. Hired by Rob Simpson, who was one of the founding members of the Blizzard Esports team. And he jumped over to Red Bull at a very young age and did a tremendous job of kind of building out that program. He called me up one day, or actually I think I called him. I was like, Hey dude, I'm trying to figure out my next move. Do you need any help over there? Uh, and he's like, actually, I need somebody to help me come run events. Can you help me come run events? And so I joined Red Bull as a contractor just to be an event manager for a year. Yeah. And we built our program around Starcraft because that was still the biggest thing in the world. And we ran three killer events in Atlanta, Detroit, and Washington, D.C. Yes, because the first event was in New York and I was talent for that one. And boy, man, Red Bull just taught me so much. When I, when I joined on my first day, Rob's like, okay, you got to put together a plan for these three events and a budget go. And so I put my head down and worked for a week or two and came up with something that I thought was pretty good. Yeah. You know, venues, expected costs, players, prizes, formats, you know, some creative ideas. And then Rob's like, okay, we're going to fly to New York and meet the big event guy at Red Bull. And so we got on a plane, flew to New York, met Josh Green, who turned into being a great mentor to me. 
And I presented my plan to Josh and he said, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Let me tell you every reason why it's awful. And he just eviscerated me for like an hour and it felt terrible. Wow. Um, but then at the end of that hour, he says, all right, now we're going to fix it. And we kind of rebuilt the whole thing from the ground up. And he showed me how he, how he would do it. And man, it made a lot of sense. And, and it was just like smart operational logistics stuff. Like, yeah, you know, the, the stage has to fit through the door and, you know, the, the truck has to show up before the people. Basic things. Experience. Um, like those are learnings based on experience, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you, and you, you can't learn stuff until you do it. That's exactly right. And Josh has done more events than anybody I know. And he's done more of them well yeah. uh, than anyone in the game, I would say. Anyway, he helped me reshape the plan. And then I went back to Santa Monica to headquarters and got to work. And he came out to that first event in Atlanta to see how I did. And, and it was like, okay, right? Like it was, it was solidly okay. I think sure. people received it well and it was considered a success, but there was so many things to do better. And then the second event was in Detroit and it was pretty dang good. I was really proud of the Detroit event. And then the third event was in DC and Josh helped quarterback that one. I, I should say Josh quarterback that one. And I was more like the backup running back, third string quarterback, third string. <laughs> <laughs> the punter. And, uh, yeah. Special teams. Yeah. Anyway, that, that event was freaking awesome. It was just stellar and one of the best Starcraft events, I think of all time mm. and some really special. What made moments. it so good? Well, first and foremost, we got great games and we had great players, you know, and, and that's another important thing to realize when you're talking about esports. Like at the end of the day, we come for the games. The production value is cool, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. The prize money is great, but it's really not as important as the games because at the end of the day, we play to be the best, right? We're, we're still competing yeah. to be the best at what we do. And maybe I've chosen to be the best at Dota because that's the one that has the most prize money, but I'm still trying to be the best, damn it. Yeah. And that's kind of what it comes down to. And so we did just get lucky with amazing players and really special, great games and great stories. And then it was a beautiful venue and all that extra stuff, that polish we threw on top, we got it really right. Like the content was great. The, the production value was great. We did, we activated the city for like a week. Like, so the Korean players flew in and we took them to the Korean embassy the next day for to have tea with the ambassador. And, cool. you know, we did a lot of great press and we brought the media to the venue and, you know, we were up in the balcony shooting interviews the days before the event and it all just came together and there was a killer after party and we had just an awesome time and it was, it was rocking. And then I got back to headquarters afterwards and it was time to meet with the VP of finance to reconcile my budget for the year. And I just got eviscerated again because I was way over budget. And shoot. And this was like, this was really the big learning, like outside of Josh teaching me how to do it. Yeah. On the backside of it, I had met with Alison Benang, one of the youngest VPs of finance ever at a company as big as Red Bull. Right? Oh, wow. Big, mm -hmm. CPG brand. I think she's now at Fabletics and she's still crushing. She's a badass. Cool. And man, she could be mean because right? she <laughs> locked me in a room and went through the VP of finance of a multi-billion dollar company. I, my, my budget for the year was like $1.2 million. Locked me in a room and she personally went through every single receipt from every single transaction wow. from the entire year. Not because she was trying to make me feel like I was small, but because she was trying to show me how to do it the right way. Mm. And so it was all about reconciliation and you know, make, showing a paper trail and getting it right. And she asked lots of good questions about, hey, why does your vendor charge you $400 for this lobster dinner? And she's like showing me a receipt. And I'm like, I don't know. They're probably celebrating because it was a great, successful event. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, you know, she brought that kind of scrutiny. And again, it just taught me a ton. And the next year, Red Bull made me a full-time employee. And then in the years after that, I became the manager of the program. And then I, I was in charge of the whole program for all of North America my last year at the company. 
And my job had changed from being the event guy to mostly flying around and giving strategy talks to the marketing teams in different parts of the country. And hey, skateboard guy, this is why you should care about video games. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I definitely, I think, grew up as a professional in the company. And ultimately, that's what led, I think, to me being recruited to go to New York. And I was the first hire for New York Excelsior. Well, as their head of events in biz dev. Yeah, go ahead. What I'm hearing about Red Bull is it sounds like you had, I mean, that could have been a terrible experience had those people who you were reporting to were a little bit different, right? Yeah, I mean, these were people was. who, they definitely held, held you accountable, but what I'm hearing is they were supporting you and they were helping you learn somebody who had great knowledge but was not yet a professional. Yeah. One way that I can relate is my very first boss of my first office job, Vanita McKnight, amazing woman in Washington, D.C. And this was a woman who, when you screwed up, she called you into the office and you were terrified. <laughs> yep. But you left stoked. And the reason was she would call you in and she would say, John, what happened here? How did you drop the ball? Like, tell me exactly yeah. what you did wrong. Okay. And then, so you're owning it, right? Accountability. And then okay, what processes can we put in place to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Sure. And so not only are you being held accountable, but you're learning how to do your job better. So the sec guess what? I didn't make that mistake ever again. Yeah. Maybe I made other mistakes, but I didn't make that one yep. again. And that's helped me as a leader treat other people that way. So I think that's really cool. It talks to the culture of the company, right? Yeah, I've been lucky to have great mentors and you're exactly right. And, you know, Allison as the VP of finance, like, she beat me up that first year, but I only had good finance meetings after that. And it's really good to have a friend in the fucking head of finance, part of my French, you know what I mean? But like right. this now when I'm over my budget by $200,000, you know, I can be, Hey, Allison, look, this is where we went wrong. Here's the records of it. We had to do this to, you know, keep the integrity of the event and to protect the brand. Okay, dude, I got your back. We'll, we'll fix it. We got some money over here that we can slide over. Yeah. You know, tighten it up next time. Yes, ma'am. Back to work. That's incredible. So then you went to New York Excelsior, and this is where you and I worked pretty closely on, mm -hmm. a, on a few things. And I loved how your approach was, I want to make New York an esports city. Yeah. So talk about how you pursued that. Yeah, man. But it was a really special killer opportunity. New York, probably the greatest city in the world. Um, a little bit battered right now in this post-COVID world, but it's the heart of the universe. The best food, all the money, the yeah. most gritty, hardworking, toughest people, so much culture and fashion and just awesomeness everywhere. And really gaming hadn't happened there, not, at least not very much. Like it was happening right. underground in certain circles and all over the place for sure. But like, it's an expensive place. And so the big events never came to New York and no one really kind of piled on the, the resource to make it, make it go. And so I felt like the opportunity was go there and build esports in New York. I and mean, that's kind of the mindset I took. What to an it. opportunity. And I mean, I agree, goodness. dude. I, I totally agree. And to me, it's always about just like where the people find the community, talk to them, connect with them, give them what they want. And so we set out to go find all the different gaming communities in New York. And we talked to the FGC and we talked to the people running the League of Legends watch parties. And we talked to the folks running the Counter-Strike lands. And, you know, we went into the arcade bars and we went to the land centers and we just, we met everybody. And we went to the high schools and the colleges and we talked to the clubs yeah. um, and every, everything that we did sort of mapped back to like, let's create awesome experiences for these people because at the end of the day we were working for a team and i think that at the end of the day the job was to create fans so if you're creating right. new fans of a new sport you know what's the best way to do it and to me it was like go find 
the youngest, most impressionable gamers that you can and just give them amazing experiences and opportunities. And so, you know, it became, you know, working towards building a gaming land center in the Brooklyn High School of Sports Management, the first in the country, funded by the Department of Education. I got to speak at their high school graduation. It was a really special experience, one of the coolest in my career. It became, you know, putting together the NYXL Spring Rally, where we got every college in the Northeast to participate in a March Madness style Overwatch League competition that started on social media and was about getting, you know, votes and making sick memes. And it ended up in a 16 team single elimination bracket for some cash. And it was also about, you know, raising up the team and hosting cool watch parties and putting together awesome events when the opportunity was there. And again, everything always sort of mapped back to community. And the, the best part of it was we were there as an Overwatch team, but by the end of my time in New York, when we would host an event, the folks that would come out were from everywhere, right? The FGC was there. The league kids were yeah. there. The, the the folks that don't give a damn about Overwatch were still coming out because what we built was a New York gaming community and not just, you know, an Overwatch not just fan an Overwatch club. community. Yeah. And that's one thing that I thought was really cool was seeing you go to these other fan bases, if you will. What, what a lot of people on the outside don't realize is that there are different people you know, different titles, you know, the, the FGC community is different than the Dota community is different than the Overwatch community, etc. But there's also this commonality, right? Like you share mm-hmm. this love for games, you may gravitate towards one game because you're better at it, or, or you got into it first, and you fell in love with it. But I thought it was really cool how you you didn't just silo, okay, Overwatch and overlook everybody else. You said, okay, we're the pro team in this city. And what was the name of that? Was it Seven Deadly Venoms or... Five Deadly Venoms, yeah. Five Deadly Venoms. I gave them two extra. It's because I was so impressed with what they did. Yeah, they were were very impressive. Yeah, so... They are very impressive. They still, they're out there. Three-year anniversary, like yesterday, 5DV. I've got my challenge coin in my bedroom. 13th Warrior. That's awesome. There's only 200 of them. Wow. That's super cool. Yeah, with with our GameStop watch parties, our goal was to bring together the community to watch these games when there weren't games happening in person because they were all at uh, Blizzard Arena in LA. Mm-hmm. And let's see, we did one at Jay-Z's 4040 Club in Manhattan. Yeah. And just just really cool experiences. Young people value experiences more than owning products. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is simply the, is the, the love for the brand. Is like, if you love a brand, you're going to go further. You're going to pay more if needed, you know, convenience, I think, is the ultimate, but it's second to love. When you see Amazon, Amazon has crushed everybody because of convenience, mm. right? But me as a skateboarder, this is more true in subcultures, I think. So me as a skateboarder, we are not big fans of mall stores for uh, that sell skateboarding equipment and apparel because they cannibalize the mom and pop skate shop industry. They just sell clothing and shoes that have high margins. And then you go to the skate shop to buy a skateboard that doesn't make any margin for the, Mm. for the owner. But I am willing to go further and pay a little more to support my local skate shop because I love them. Yeah. And I think that's true um, in gaming is not only the endemic organizations, but also the brands that support esports and gaming. If, yeah. I think if you really add meaningful value to the community, meaning find what they want that they can't attain for themselves and give that to them, 
then you're embraced. And it's a group of people that will embrace you and champion you more than any group you're going to find anywhere else. You're totally right. But it, but it, but you have to do that thing you just said, right? You have to, you have to give back, you have to create, you have to do for them. You have, you have to be additive to the community instead of trying to position yourself like you're trying to suck something out of it. You have to do that first, um, right? Like you correct. don't try to sell them stuff, give them a better experience. Then you'll have yeah. trouble counting your money later, but you yeah. need to support them first. Hold them up, celebrate them, make them great because they are, and and then reap the reward because like you're all in it together. You've built now a community and not just a business. Absolutely. So because you have this experience and you have this knowledge, can you share with our audience what are some ways that are meaningful, are valuable to improve the the experiences of the community? Well, I think the first thing that I would say is that, you know, remember that play is central to everything. I've never put together an event where you can't come there and play games because I know that there is a percentage of my audience and my fan base that only wants to come there to play games. We used to throw the most ripping after parties at Evo yeah. uh, in Las Vegas. Yep. Uh, and they were sick. They were they were absolutely spectacular. And you can find some photos of them. They They were banging every time. But there is a percentage of folks that would not come if they knew that they couldn't just find a dark corner and sit down and play some Street Fighter or some Smash Brothers or some Tekken and just like nerd out, right? True. Um, so like, don't forget who your audience is. They're they're gamers and they want to play games. And for for some of them, that's all they want to mm. do. Yeah. Find really cool ways to make them feel like they're part of something special. Let's go back to the Five Deadly Venoms example. The Five Deadly Venoms was the first Overwatch League fan club um, founded to be fans of New York Excelsior. When they, so they made these challenge coins, they're really a nice high quality, I think stainless steel. They only made 200 and they're all numbered. Mm. And the first 200 fans that joined the club could get a coin. And if you want to get a coin after that, you got to get one from one of the existing members, right? They're special. Yeah. Uh, And it was an unspoken rule at every NYXL watch party that if you flash your challenge coin at the bar that you drink for free, right? Boom. And, And you're not, it's not something to be taken advantage of. You're not to go up there and flash your coin and buy 10 drinks. You're going to go up there and order your drink and flash your coin and you'll drink on us. Yeah. And it was just a, an agreement between us and the, and the club. And it was cool and sneaky and underground. And they always had a great time. And if it cost me, because uh, everybody doesn't show up every time, by sure. the way, not 200 people aren't showing up to drink for free. What happens is like 50 people show up to drink for free. And so if I'm going right. to spend, you know, a grand on drinks, two grand on drinks one night, throwing an amazing party for my fans when like a thousand people are going to be there or 2000 people are going to be there and they're going to spend a heck of a lot more. That is worth it every single time to make them feel like they're part of something really special and that they're elevated for being like the true, most hardcore diehard supporters of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, And, you know, in that same way, I would say they always try and give back to that community. I think the activation I did in New York that I was most proud of had nothing to do with Overwatch or Overwatch League. It was uh, a partnership with a program called Kids in the Game, where we partnered with some charter schools in Harlem for young kids, middle school kids. And we developed an after-school program to teach them how to set up a gaming console, set up a stream, play NBA 2K, and they had some tournaments. And so we had something like eight weeks of after-school practice. Mm. And then we had a tournament that we threw at Helix Esports in New Jersey where we bust the kids out. And it was ripping. And and the impact on those kids was really special. The challenge that we were given at the top of it was like, hey, here's a bunch of kids that are getting in trouble. They're not always getting good grades. They're getting in fights. They're not always showing up to school. Your goals, get them to care about school. Get them to just show up. Yeah. And see if you can get them to make a friend. 
And as a stretch goal, if their grades are affected a little bit, that's awesome. And we just smashed every single one of those goals. These kids became small communities. Um, What we found were the best players became like mentor figures to the players that were learning. They got incredibly invested in the competition. They played sick games and they learned about hosting tournaments and setting up some tech and running a stream and being a commentator and like things like that were really special. So always try and give back. That's super cool. I think would probably be the last little piece that I would say there because gamers like skaters, like, you know, fight fans, like any underground subculture, uh, we, you know, real recognize real, you know what I mean? Like, absolutely. we don't want to be posed to, we just want to be understood. And, you know, it's not so hard. Just, just make the effort to understand them and then give them things that matter. I love that. I love especially the the kids in the game aspect, because I always say that the, the negative aspects of gaming are obvious and often overblown, I would say. But when you're a parent and you're looking at your kid playing video games, you're concerned, you're going to say, okay, you're sitting down too much. You're in front of a screen, right? Because growing up, I knew sitting in front of a TV was bad. So I assume sitting in front of a computer all the time is probably bad too. And then there's some games that you don't want some uh, small children playing, of course. But what I do love is when we can help parents understand the positive aspects of gaming because there's so many. Mm -hmm. And when you see technology and the future of employment and entrepreneurship in these things, we see that there are so many skills. There's hard skills that are developed, like you said, putting together a console. Okay, maybe you're going to get into, you know, computing and and things of that nature. Or the stream, maybe you're going to find a career in broadcasting or something like that. I know uh, for a fact the military has a shortage of of pilots Mm -hmm. and simple, you know, a lot of drones are actually flown with an Xbox controller. And so to have that ability. And then the other thing I was talking to Patrick Klein from eFuse, he was telling me something like 80%, of kids who joined a high school team, esports team had not participated in a team sport before. And so not only do you have the benefits of being a teammate and leadership and things of that nature, but just camaraderie, you know, like, like you could save a life of a child because you gave them something to be part Mm -hmm. of that meant something that also made a friend who was there for them in a difficult time. I mean, it's so powerful. I totally agree. It's organized competition for the other half of kids that don't get to go out for it. Reminds me of Red Bull Proving Grounds, something I was very proud of that we got to work on at Red Bull. It was a local fighting game series that took place in cities across America. And it was not really for pros, right? If you're over a certain like pro rank, you're not allowed to participate or you can come participate, but you can't qualify for the finals of Red Bull Proving Grounds. It's meant to be a celebration of amateur players. Yeah. And so it happened in 16 cities across America and Canada. And at the end of the year, we flew out the three best amateur players from each of those cities. And I'll never forget talking to some of the guys that came out from Atlanta, my home city, and then being like, this is my first time ever on an airplane or saying like, hey, man, coming out wow. to these events has gave me a sense of community. It might have saved my life, kept me out of trouble. You know, that was, I was always nice to see that we were like getting it right in that way. Yeah. So. Well, I love hearing your background. I love sharing your story. You have such a different perspective from so many people who I talk to because you've had such a unique path. Before I let you go here, I'd love to hear a view of what you think is coming in the future. I I, I know, and I'm not, so say as much as you want to, because yeah. I know that there's a, a bigger announcement coming, but um, teasing. anything teasing you'd like a little to bit. tease. Yeah. 
So you, you asked me yesterday, hey, can you make a big prediction for like what's gonna what's the next kind of big disruptive innovative thing that's gonna happen in esports? Yeah. So John knows that I'm working on something. We're we're making <laughs> so excited making about something. It. Yeah. And, and 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 without giving away too much, my, my prediction is the next big disruptive innovation is like esports for pets, right? For pets. Just, ima- just imagine. Okay. So yeah. I'm gonna imagine, and I think we're gonna have to have you back on once. Please do something related to that prediction. Yeah, please do. Come, we're excited. Well, that's awesome. Anything else before I let you go? Any any way you want people to get a hold of you, or do you want to be left uh, alone playing golf in Palm Springs? Oh, reach out to me anytime. Twitter's probably the easiest way. Just tweet at me, Mister Bitter TV on Twitter. Thanks, John. I really love the work you do and the Thanks. vibes you give off and the way you handle yourself. So it's a pleasure. I always enjoy our conversations. I look forward to the next one. And best of luck to you, brother. Thank you. I appreciate it. That is Ben Nickel joining us on the DLC Drop podcast. Thank you for being here. We appreciate it.